Father in heaven, we come to you this morning. Thank you, Lord, for your truth. Uh, we ask, Lord, that you would open our hearts, give us hearts that, uh, that hear your truth, that are submissive to you, that love you. Lord, may you work within us and teach us this morning. We ask for your uh, mercy and grace to be upon us. Uh, we ask for your help. May you teach us in Jesus' name. Amen. This is the last in this three-part series on the, our union with Christ. We started looking several weeks ago at our union with Adam. God chose him as our representative at the beginning. We lost our estate in him and ended hopeless and, as Paul says, without God in the world. We also saw how God came to our rescue by sending the great deliverer, his own son, to rescue us and to be the second man, that is, the second representative, or the Bible calls him the last Adam. All who put their trust in Christ now have another representative, a much greater representative in whom they find themselves forgiven of not only Adam's sin, but all their many sins besides, and given life eternal. They have Christ himself. They are in Christ, and he is in them. The Apostle Paul speaks of the mystery of the gospel of which he was made a minister. And he speaks of that mystery, saying, the mystery which has been hidden from the past ages and generations, but has now been manifested to his saints, to whom God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. That's Colossians chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. Pastor Dan was very kind to give me his materials that he had on the subject, and I'm drawing heavily right now from uh, a sermon he gave on Colossians chapter 2. Pastor Dan said, apart from Christ, I'm quoting, apart from Christ, we have nothing from God. In Christ, we have everything the Father has ever promised. I want to deal briefly with the meaning of union with Christ. How does God think about believers? He always thinks of us in union with Jesus Christ. Pastor Dan said this, God never thinks about you apart from Christ. God never thinks of you apart from Jesus Christ. If you stop and think about it, if God ever dealt with us apart from Christ, what would be our lot? <laughs> if, if he ever dealt with us apart from Christ, we would be hopeless. Christ, union with Christ, affects how God thinks of us and deals with us. Union with Christ is everything. When did this all start? That's one thing that we have not yet touched upon is the beginning of our union with Christ. When did this all start? 
Well, the scriptures say that we've been chosen from eternity past. Our union with Christ is referred to many times in the New Testament. In uh, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 to 4, we read this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. So that says we were chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. Speaking of God, Paul says in 2 Timothy 1.9, who has saved us, that is God, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. So we've got two different phrases here. Before the foundation of the world and from all eternity. Wayne, Wayne Grudem says this. This means that since we did not yet exist, God looked into the future and knew we would exist and established a relationship with us in Christ. I would edit that a bit theologically and put it this way. <laughs> this means that since we did not yet exist, God looked into the future and determined that we would exist. Not just knew we would exist. He determined that we would exist. And because of that, we exist. <laughs> because he determined it so. And established a relationship with us in Christ. Note that God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. And it was according to his purpose and grace given us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. This means that our union with Christ began before we were. We were already in the mind of God, chosen by him in Christ before ever the world was. Do you see why people speak of this relationship, union with Christ, as being a mystical union? Mystical does not mean fairy tales. It means we don't understand it. It's outside of our understanding. It lies in the area of mystery. Note that in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4, it speaks of before the foundation of the world. The world did not have a beginning um, oh, sorry, the world did have a beginning, so before that would, be, would indeed be before. Uh, and the reason I'm saying it this way is because when you, if you talk about before the world was, I don't know how to talk about it. Uh, if you don't have space and time, I, I'm lost. I have no words to convey anything about it because I know nothing about anything that's outside of space and time. Uh, so, when you talk about the eternal state, uh, we, you can't talk about time, I guess. And I don't, understand, I don't understand that. At that point, I'm lost in mystery. When you get outside of time, I don't know what to say. Though we can't understand all the details, 
We do know that God established a relationship before creation with those whose hearts he opens now, he calls to himself now in time. He calls us to himself now in the present world. The choosing of us to salvation in Christ predated creation. His calling us happens now in our, in our life, in our experience. Sinclair Ferguson says this, Before time, we were chosen, united to Christ in the mind and purpose of God. We've been predestined to be saved from the old life in Adam. We were predestined in love. And we measure God's love by the gap between the lover, that is God, and the loved one, us. The great distance the lover crosses to save, to save the loved one. So he's, he's talking about the greatness of God's love. And we measure it by the distance between the two. Between an infinite creator and us, uh, puny little creatures. It's long-lasting. It's from eternity to forever. The greater the gap, the greater the love. The distance traveled to gain the beloved is also to be considered. From heaven to earth. The gifts given. Everything we have in Christ. The obstacles the lover overcomes. The sacrifices the lover makes. Which is, of course, we know himself. He gave himself. Tremendous love. And this all began in the mind of God. From eternity past to forever. Another area of dealing with the subject of uh, the meaning of union with Christ is the sharing of Christ's perfect life. By union with Christ, his obedience becomes our obedience. God looked on us as perfectly obeying. Romans 5.19 says, Through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. And then in 1 Corinthians 1.30, But by his doing you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Paul said he wanted to, quote, Be found in him, that is, in Christ, not having a righteousness of my own, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God, that depends on faith. Philippians 3, 9. So by union with Christ, we gain his obedience. His obedience. It's, just, it's, an, it's an amazing thing. Uh, God looks on us that way. It's called imputation, and we've dealt with that in, this, in this, uh, the last three weeks. There's another aspect to it. We gain Christ's righteousness, his obedience, but our sin was taken by Christ. We and our sin. On the negative side, being in union with Christ, God imputed our sin to Christ. Isaiah 
uh, sorry, 2 Corinthians 5.21. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So he became our sin. Our sin imputed to him so that his righteousness would be imputed to us. The Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Isaiah 53, 6. And then in 1 Peter 2, 24. Who himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, so that having died to sin, we might live to righteousness. By his wounds you were healed. And there are other verses as well. It's not just our sins that were imputed to Christ, but God thought of, thought of us, thought of we ourselves as belonging to Christ. Our old, in Adam, self belonged to Christ. He was our representative. We died with Christ. Romans 6, 6 says, Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. And Paul said, I have been crucified with Christ, Galatians 2.20. So in God's imputation, we died when Christ died. Just as when Adam sinned, we sinned. When Christ died, we died. I take it that as God looks at the believer in Christ, he sees Christ. Christ is our new representative. The in-Adam man died with Christ. I'm no longer seen by God as being in Adam. However, it is true that I am still in this physical body inherited from Adam. This part of me still exhibits old in Adamness traits, if you want to put it that way. <laughs> I still await the redemption of my body. Paul says in Romans 8.23, We ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. And we're, that's what we're waiting for. 2 Corinthians 5.14 says this, For the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. That means that in Christ, those who put their hope in him, they died in him. And there are many other verses that uh, speak to this uh, effect. God considers us as having been buried with Christ, raised up with him, even seated with him in heavenly places. Ephesians 2, 4 to 6 says this, But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him, seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that, in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. 
And we're going to come back to that concept there. It says, in the ages to come. That sounds like time to me. The ages to come. Uh, in, in my way of thinking, ages refers to time. Uh, so it seems like uh, that what we're talking about in the future is also time, something that we can understand. Uh, anyway, forever and ever, he is going to be showing us his kindness. And that's an amazing thing. We're going to talk about that in a little bit. So God saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works. This is 2 Timothy 1.9. Not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. Why is all of this in Christ Jesus? Because he is our Savior. He is the one God appointed to be our representative, to be our substitute. He died for our sins. Our judgment fell on him. He died in our place, but he also rose from the dead, conquering death, and lives to rescue and save all who put their trust and hope in him. God sees us as being in Christ. What is true of Christ is true of us. We got original sin and death in Adam. We now get, I'm calling it, original righteousness. It doesn't get more original than this. Christ's own righteousness. We get his righteousness credited to us. God's perfect righteousness imputed to us. Plus, we become a fruit-bearing branch. We get new life, a new heart. We get Christ. Christ. What he gets, we get. R.C. Sproul explains representation of Adam and Christ this way. God gave Adam one command. Don't eat from this one tree. If he had obeyed, he would have lived. He would not have died. He did not obey, and the curse of sin fell on the human race. God sent his only begotten son into this world to be one of us. He lived his life in obedience to his father even to death on the cross. Where Adam failed, he did not fail. Adam sinned, and Christ was vindicated by his resurrection from the dead, and several times the Father said of his Son, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. Jesus rose from the dead, and that was his vindication, that he was totally righteous. Two representatives, do and live. Adam did not do. And died. Christ did do, died in our place, was raised from the dead, and lived. Thus, we are saved by works, as we said last week, not our works, but Christ's works. We embrace this great salvation by putting all our hope in the last Adam, the second man, that is the second representative, as spoken of in 1 Corinthians 15, 47. There are a number of metaphors of um, union with Christ, and we don't have time to go into those. Those would be all a study in themselves. Um, 
A built, uh, there's, uh, I'll just list a few of them here. A building and its foundation. Christ talks about a building and its foundation. A hu- relationship of a husband and a wife. A vine and branches. A body and, the, and its head. Two races of men in Adam and in Christ. And also the picture of baptism. Baptism is a picture of our union with Christ. What are the benefits of union with Christ? Pastor Dan says this, All the divine treasures that belong to the children of God are wrapped up in union with Christ. And another quote of his is this, Everything we have from God comes to us through Jesus Christ, and nothing that we have from God comes to us by any means other than Christ. So I want to go through some of the benefits of union with Christ. First of all, we've already been discussing this, justification by trusting in Christ. We are declared righteous before God because Jesus had real righteousness. He always did what was pleasing to the Father, and he's our representative in the place of Adam. That righteousness is reckoned to our account because we are in him. We are in Christ. His life is counted as our life. Are we perfect? No. We sin. But God declares us righteous because he sees his son. Not only are we justified, but we have new life. This life of Christ is Christ's life, and he is our representative. John 14, 6 says, Jesus said to him, that is to Thomas, I am the way, the truth, and the life. John 10, 28 says, And I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish. 2 Timothy 1, 10 says this, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light, through the gospel. Paul calls the gospel the word of life. Philippians 2.16. We've been brought out of death. We were dead in trespasses and sins. Ephesians 2.1. We've been brought out of death into life. Our heart has been changed. We are now a new creation. This new birth bursts into life and we actually change. We are, <clears throat> there is fruit where once we hated God, we now love God. We love his word and we love his people. All of this is because of Christ. Of us, it's because of us being in Christ. Christ is now in us. Jesus said to the Father, I in them and you in me. John 17, 23. John says in 1 John 5, 11, God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. 2 Timothy 1, 1, Paul says, the promise of life in Christ Jesus. The living, those who have life, need wisdom and knowledge. And of Christ, Paul says, in whom, in Christ, 
are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are in Christ, and we are in Christ, and he is in us. What he has, we have. Whatever wisdom, understanding we need, he has it all. All we do is we ask him. We trust in him, we rest in him, and to him we go. Philippians 4.19, And my God will fulfill all your needs according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. In Christ we have everything that we need. Thirdly, we receive the Holy Spirit. Those who are united with Christ are said to be in the Spirit. Romans 8, 9. However, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. So we have the Spirit of Christ. If you examine Romans 8, 9 to 11, you'll see that the Holy Spirit is said to be the Spirit of Christ and also the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead. That is the Father. So the Spirit is called the Spirit of Christ and the Spirit of God the Father, and the Spirit dwells in us. Are we united to Christ? Yes. And the Holy Spirit and the Father. Have you ever stopped to contemplate the impact of that? To know that God, the creator, the infinite creator of the universe, dwells in us. Uh, that's enough to blow your mind if you stop and think about it. God dwells in us. Jesus said in John 14, 23, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our dwelling with him. Our creator, God of the universe, has made his dwelling with us. Do we grasp that? Do we have any idea what that means? The living God dwelling in us. Another aspect is the eschatological blessings that we gain. Eschatology has to do with the future prophetic issues that are down the road. Our union with Christ will never end. Listen to this. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 to 7. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you've been saved, raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. In the ages to come, he's going to show us some amazing things. Colossians 3, 4. When Christ, who is our life, is manifested then you also will be manifested with him in glory. When Christ, who is our life, is manifested, then you also will be manifested with him 
in glory. We're going to be with him in glory. What does that mean? John 17, verse 24. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me be with me where I am, so that they may see my glory which you have given me. If Christ has glory, who else has glory? All those in him. What is all that going to mean? You ever thought about that? 1 John 3, 2. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not been manifested as yet what we will be. We know that when he is manifested, we will be like him. When Christ comes, we're going to be like him. Astounding. John Lease last week reminded me of a passage of Scripture in the Old Testament. In Daniel chapter 12, verses 1 to 3, it says this. Now at that time, Michael, the great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people, will stand. And there will be a time of distress such as never happened since there was a nation until that time. And at that time, your people... Everyone who is found written in the book will be rescued, and many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake, these to everlasting life, but the others to reproach and everlasting contempt. And those who have insight will shine brightly like the brightness of the expanse of heaven, and those who lead the many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. Those who have insight will shine brightly like the brightness of the expanse of heaven, those who lead the many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. What does all this entail? All these accounts of glory. We don't normally think of ourselves as being glorified, do we? It's not, it's not what we usually think about. What does all this involve? You ever think about it? Everything God gives us is in Christ. Do we have any idea what this means? What is the magnitude of this? The eternal triune God dwelling in you. You are in Christ and Christ is in you. If we are children of God, Paul says, then we are also heirs. Heirs of God. And fellow heirs with Christ. Romans eight seventeen. You and I, heirs. Of God? What does that entail? Joint heirs with Christ? What is, what is he an heir to? Everything, right? Everything. What is his? His mind as an heir. Where does this take us? Do you see how explosive this is? What fabulous blessings and riches and glory are his. And I am an heir of God and an heir with Christ. That reminds me of a chorus that we sang when we were kids. And I went to the internet to make sure I remembered the lyrics correctly. And I discovered that this chorus was also written by John W. Peterson. (laughs) 
<laughs> I didn't, hadn't realized that. It says this, he owns the cattle on a thousand hills, the wealth in every mine. He owns the rivers and rocks and rills, the sun and stars that shine, wonderful riches more than tongue can tell. He is my father, so they're mine as well. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. I know that he will care for me. The folks, <laughs> this, is, this is a little kid's song that we sang. It's far greater than a thousand, you know, the cattle on a thousand hills. Uh, I don't think we can even imagine the glory and what God has in store for us. I um, came across a... Um, And uh, it was a, a conference that was being held uh, in John Piper's, I, I think probably up in Minneapolis, I'm just uh, guessing. But anyway, Michael Horton was asked to come and speak on Calvin's view on union with Christ. And so I took notes on it, and I'd like to share those with you. But... I would suggest you go home and watch it for yourself, because it's very interesting. What did Calvin think about union with Christ? One thing that Michael Horton says at the beginning is that Calvin was not a Calvinist. <laughs> he was a reforming Catholic. <laughs> I just thought that was interesting, so I threw that in here. He says this, our identity has been settled because our legal standing before God is settled. What now is being worked out is our growth in Christ. We distinguish justification from sanctification, but we never separate them. Justification frees us to active sanctification. We are in Christ out of ourselves. We fled from ourselves. We get all Christ's benefits. We fled into Christ. Having been grafted into the body of Christ, we are made partakers of a divine adoption, and we are heirs of heaven. We are one with the Son of God, not because he conveys his essence to us, but because by the power of the Holy Spirit he imparts to us his life and all of his blessings that he has received from the Father. In other words, what he's saying is, we don't become God. Not his, he does not impart to us his essence. And we're going to come back to that in just a minute. Calvin goes on, the vital sap, all life and strength proceeds from him alone. All his benefits belong to us. Only because we are united now to Christ can we bear the fruit of righteousness. We aren't trying to bear fruit in order to be united to him. We bear fruit because we are united to him. We are adopted into his family and so now have the same relation to the Father as Christ has to the Father by adoption. You begin to get some idea about the tremendous position that God is giving to us? It's amazing. 
We are justified never without works, but never through works. Since in our sharing in Christ, which justifies us, sanctification is just as much included as justification. Now, God has changed from the relation of a judge condemning us through his law to a father who is leading us, never judging or condemning us, but disciplining us and leading us as a father. And here's an interesting statement uh, that uh, Horton brings out. He says that the fatherhood of God is more central to Calvin's thinking than the sovereignty of God. You know, normally we think of Calvin, sovereignty of God, you know. He says more central to his thinking was the fatherhood of God. God is our father. And, uh, and then Michael Horton gives this example from his own life. <laughs> he, he had an illustration of this from his own life, and I thought I'd share that with you. His dad was an airplane mechanic during World War II, uh, and he was the kind of guy that could, you know, he was a jack of all trades. He could fix anything. He built his own houses and whatever. But Michael says the apple fell far from the tree. <laughs> and you should uh, hear him tell it. It's uh, a little more interesting than I can do. He had none of his dad's DNA when it came to fixing things. Uh, <laughs> But he says, as a boy, he was working on a car with his dad, getting his hands really greasy, contributing nothing to the process. <laughs> At the end, his dad said to him, press that right there. No, not that, this, press this. So he pressed it, his dad gets in the car and starts the car. Uh, <clears throat> they then walked into the house with dirty hands, and Mike was beaming at mom. And his dad said, well, Mike fixed the car. <laughs> and Mike says, that was a good dad. Yeah, a good father. And as I was thinking about that illustration, you know what it reminds me of? Imputation. <laughs> Mike didn't do a thing. He probably just got in the way, mostly. But he got the credit. The father gave him the credit. That's imputation. It was imputed to him. And so in front of mom, Mike gets the glory. He did almost, or he did virtually nothing. That's a picture of what God does with us. Just a picture. That's what God does. And Calvin says, God really does delight in our good works. But people can say, well, our sin still clings to our good works. And our sin spoils our good works. And it would, he says, spoil our works if we were going to a judge. But we are going to a father. And the father has forgiven all our sin clinging to our good works in Jesus Christ. So Calvin says, stop being paralyzed. Well, our, our, our works aren't perfect. No, our good works aren't perfect. But a father doesn't care. He's received us in Jesus Christ. 
and we seek to serve him out of love for him. Calvin goes on and says this, the ultimate goal of God's saving work is our glorification. Not even sanctification is the end. And he says, and I quote, quote, let us mark the end of the gospel is to render us eventually conformable to God and if we may so speak, to deify us, unquote. Now be careful here. He is not saying we become God. That's not what he's saying. He's already said, you know, God does not give us his essence. But what he is saying is that we become like God. And here's, here, I'll, I'll give a little clarification on all this. Christ has so united us to himself that he will not be glorified without us. Calvin says this, and I quote, Christ has so united us to himself that he considers himself right now somewhat incomplete, imperfect, until we are raised from the dead. Second Peter, <clears throat> unquote, Second Peter 1.4 speaks of our becoming partakers of the divine nature. Not essence, not God's essence, but the quality of being like God. Calvin realized that there were fanatics that believed that ultimately we dissolve into God himself. The apostles only intended to say that when divested of all our vices, we shall be partakers of divine and blessed immortality and glory so as to be, as it were, one with God as far as our capacities will allow. In other words, we're going to be like God as far as a created being can be. Amazing. Without crossing that dividing line between creature and creator, but right up to the edge, (laughs) Horton says when he's telling about this. And Calvin goes on. Far from raising our minds away from the body to incorporeal things. Now, let me just back up here and just say, some people believe that, you know, the body's evil, and so we've got to get out of this body, and someday we'll just be some spirit out there floating around. And Calvin says, oh, no, no, no. Far from raising our minds away from the body to incorporeal, that means outside the body, to those kind of things, he says, they alone receive the fruit of Christ's benefits who raise their minds to the resurrection of the body, the resurrection of our flesh, which Christ now has in heaven. He is in our flesh and will return that way. As he is so will we also be, for we are one with Christ. We will share God's glory. This glory that we will experience includes the body as well as the soul, the whole church as well as the individual believer. It is, even, it is for even the weakest believer, and its focus is on the resurrection from the dead, not the ascent of the soul away from this world, because it is for this world that God sent his Son. As Christ was when he left, so is he now, and will he be when he returns, and we shall be like him. 
our glorification is not even paradise restored. It's far greater. What eye has not seen nor ear heard, only Christ knows. Since everything is in Christ, Calvin says, let us drink from this fountain and no other. By way of application for us, I was thinking about, you know, how does this apply? Well, what kind of people ought we to be? 2 Peter 3, 11. What kind of people ought we to be seeing that these things are so? Seeing that this is what God has shown to us in his word. Titus 2.10, in everything we want to adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Colossians 3.2, set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. Boy, the things of earth just pale to insignificance compared to what is coming. Ephesians 4, 1 to 3, Paul says this, I therefore the prisoner in the Lord exhort you to walk worthy of the calling with which you've been called. How do you walk worthy? All humility. With all humility. (laughs) Gentleness with patience, bearing with one another, really hard to do, bearing with one another in love, diligent to keep the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace, with all humility. Philippians 2, let this mind be in you, which was in Christ Jesus. He made himself of no reputation. He took upon himself the form of a servant. He was made in the likeness of men. He humbled himself. There it is again. He humbled himself. Humility. Became obedient to death, even the death of the cross. Humility. You know, pride is one of the biggest problems that we all face. I was just thinking of one issue that we all face. Pride is a monster. We're proud as peacocks, aren't we? (laughs) I don't think we know the half of it, really, if we stop and analyze things. Uh, But, you know, I was thinking of Michael Horton's example. His His dad said, son, push, push that right there. We can't even push anything unless God enables us to do it. Jesus said, without me, you can do nothing. Nothing. Without me, you can do nothing. I can't even push the button without God's enablement, without Christ's blessing, his help. So where does pride come into all this? You know, what's there to be proud of? Um, Several... uh, Weeks ago, Damon mentioned John Chrysostom from, um, he was the golden mouth from way back in the 300, 400 AD. There was another golden mouth in the 1800s named Charles Spurgeon. And he, um, he said the following. He just lays us low with these words, and only he could say it this way. 
And this is, he could say this because he knew his own heart and he knew what people were like. And this is us, folks. Listen. If any man thinks ill of you, do not be angry with him, for you are worse than he thinks you to be. (laughs) If he charges you falsely at some point, yet be satisfied. For if he knew you better, he might change the accusation, and you would be no gainer for the correction. If you have your moral portrait painted, and it is ugly, be satisfied. For it only needs a few blacker touches, and it would be still nearer the truth. You know, I mean, that's us. That's us. But take heart, folks. Take heart. We always run into Christ. We are in him, and in him the Father accepts us. And sees us as being in Christ. Remember your identity. Your identity is in Christ. In Christ, God accepts us as his children. And let us ever be looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. And let us nurture a heart of humility and lay aside the sin that so easily besets us. Hebrews 12.1 And let us learn to adopt a biblical perspective of ourselves. And who we are in Christ. And let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for these, uh, these times of looking into our union with Christ. Absolutely important. Oh Lord, do a great work within us. May we demonstrate Christ in our life. May you help us in overcoming the sins that so easily beset us and help us in running this race. And may we be faithful to you. May we be a church that loves you and is loving each other and getting along in peace with each other. In Jesus' name, amen.